You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Anthem Church. How are we doing this morning? Awesome. Hey, guys, it's an incredible joy to be with you. I, I know we've not met in person, and Stan can make me feel bad because it's easy to do with my heart, but... Uh, one of the things that I delight in is every couple of weeks, Stan and I get on the phone together, and I just want you to know you have a church in Cedar Falls, Iowa. You've probably never been there, maybe you've never even heard of it, that is cheering you on, is praying for you even this morning. That's one of the things that we're celebrating as a church is me being down here and praying for you. Um, but some of the things that we talk about that I just love that I see happening in this church body from a distance, you just got to know is pace setting in our salt company, our salt network. First off, the vibrancy of your community life, which you guys shared, guys, is something that is uniquely happening here that I wish was more true in all of our other churches, but the number of you that are plugged in and connected and doing life together, even intergenerationally, is just beautiful. I've, I've heard about your second halfers ministry that some of you may not want to admit that you're a part of. I get that. Uh, but in a church that is focused on reaching the next generation, we celebrate all the time that we are a multi-generational church with a next-generation focus. And I'm dying for people that are in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and beyond to partner with me to just get the gospel to the next generation. One of the heartbeats of my life is that the church that I can pass off to my grandkids and great-grandkids is more beautiful than the one that I received. Isn't that a worthy thing to give ourselves to? And so I, I praise God for the second halfers. Another thing you got to know that is unique about this church body that we just celebrate in the network is your passion for the nations. Here, I was celebrating this the other day. Stan had to correct me because I, I thought I had heard that there was seven or eight people that were dreaming and praying about spending their lives overseas and giving themselves to that work. He had to correct me last night. He's like, no, it's seven or eight couples. I'm like, oh, I was already impressed. Now you double that. That's insane. And so just, I love the work that God is doing here, Anthem. And, and just know you have brothers and sisters that you don't even know that love you and celebrate you and continue to pray for God's continued work here. And now with students, class is about to start. Sorry for that reminder. But ministry year about to start, which is exciting. And so, um, guys, if you would, I would love for you to join me in Ruth chapter 3. As we continue on in this series here that you've been in, and I kind of get the, the privilege of jumping in today. But within Ruth, this, this book, I mean, it's 85 verses just packed with dramatic beauty. In fact, if, if you didn't know maybe the end of the story, maybe that's where some of you are. You're like, you don't know how this thing's going to turn out yet. You're, you're reading it without knowing the ending. It's actually quite suspenseful. You get into chapter 1. And you see that Naomi experiences tremendous loss. Now, I want to just pause for a bit because I want to make sure that, you, like, if you've missed the past few weeks, you don't know this, I'll just kind of pull you up to speed. Or maybe you just kind of went through it too quick. It didn't hit you. But particularly moms and wives, can you imagine the pain that Naomi has walked through? It was a famine that drove her and her husband and their boys out of their home country. And while living as a refugee in a foreign land, her husband dies. And just when life continues on and maybe starts to hit its joyful moments as she watches her two boys grow up and get married, 
they end up both dying. And now, after a span of about a decade, she's sitting there in a foreign land looking at two foreign daughter-in-laws who are both widows, herself a widow. Years. I mean, that's all she's got, just marked with just pain, loss. I think if you want to summarize chapter one in a word, it's just this word of emptiness. Chapter one ends with these verses, 20 and 21, where she says, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I love that the Bible is so real and raw in moments like that, especially for those of us who have lived through pain and hardships We've all been in those spots where we've asked the question, where is God in this? That's chapter one. Chapter two, Naomi begins to see just a a glimmer of hope, like the dark clouds are beginning to break above her head. The sun is shining in, and she just begins to maybe trust in the goodness of God again. It says this. This is how Ruth chapter two ends, verse 20 And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, may Boaz, speaking of Boaz, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, talking about the Lord's kindness, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Just a glimmer of hope. And what's beautiful is when you get to chapter 3 now, this is in the whole book, which is why I'm really humbled that Todd and Luke and Stan would give me Ruth 3. This is the high point of the whole book. This is the moment of, of like greatest suspense because this is the make or break moment. That glimmer of hope now back in Naomi's life is going to inspire her to action. And we don't know how things are going to turn out. But hope has inspired action. And so we're going to pick up in Ruth 3, verse 1. You can join me there. It says this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say... I will do. As if you're taking notes this morning, I'll just pause there for a bit and and hit this part. If you're taking notes this morning, I think one of the key themes that we need to walk away from Ruth 3 thinking about and holding on to is this phrase, hope helps us dream. Hope helps us dream. Victims don't dream. Cynics don't dream. Right? And situations like this, like Naomi has experienced, like I totally get it. The pain and the hardships of all that you've gone through are almost so unbearable that it's hard to not be paralyzed by pain or by anger. But I think we need to realize that that hope is this essential ingredient to dreaming. Naomi has tasted the goodness of God, and it's causing her to dream. She's beginning to think forward. She's pursuing a brighter future. She's, she's dreaming again. 
I think one of the ways that we need to be the body of Christ for each other is to help each other find hope in God, particularly in the hard times. I, I want to ask a, a question to you. This will be kind of like a moment of self-reflection. But what type of person are you? Are you the type of person that is more aware of God, what God is doing and has done? Are you more aware of what God isn't doing and hasn't done? What type of person are you? Guys, in shepherding a church and serving as a pastor, one thing you got to get good at, sadly, because of the broken world that we live in, is how to enter into hardships with people and how to help people find hope in God in those times. And in those moments where we're in a living room or a coffee shop or they're in my office or we just catch each other at a grocery store, there's always two promises that I hold on to that is like my way of trying to help somebody find hope in God. And I don't come out quick with these. When people are hurting, you just, for the most part, you try to just shut your mouth and just throw an arm around them. But there's always these two things just quickly on my lips, just wanting to speak to them. Number one is that God is not far from the hurting. But what he promises us is that actually God is nearest to the brokenhearted. You're trying to help somebody find hope in God, start there. Remind them that God is nearest to the brokenhearted. If you have a heavy heart this morning, God is not far from you. He's not pushing you away. He's nearest to the brokenhearted. And then the second thing that I will run to Think of Psalm 23. Maybe you know that one. The Lord is my shepherd. It goes on. Another kind of key part of that that a lot of people know. They, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Do you know what it says in verse 6? This is one of my favorite promises in all of Scripture. It says this. And only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life especially in the midst of hardship, that is a tremendous promise. And every time I'm, I'm walking through it myself or I'm walking somebody else through it, in me is this rock-solid confidence that surely the goodness of God is in this somewhere. Somewhere the goodness of God is in this. Hope helps us dream. I think it's actually this hope, this this mindset that actually is one of the things that, that sets our network apart. And maybe central Missouri is different than where I'm from. But where I grew up and the type of churches I grew up around as a young person was typically full of cynical people. Their mindset toward the future of the church and to the world is that essentially it's just going to pot. I think one of the things that sets us apart as a network is that I, man, that is awesome. That just adds the dramatic effect one of the things I think about for the, the Lord rumbles, all right. But guys, one of the things that brings our network together and I think sets us apart is this rock-solid belief that God's greatest works are still before us, not behind us. How many churches do you know have that rock-solid belief in their core, believing that God's greatest works are before us and not behind us? Because what I do, when I look out at the next generation, I start seeing young people. I don't start thinking, gosh, I hope you guys don't ruin what we get started or get moving. Guys, 
I look at this room full of people and I just begin to dream. And I go, I, I bet there's better elders in here than I will ever hope to be. There's better communicators in here than I will ever hope to be. There are better leaders in here than I could ever hope to be. I, I look at this next generation that God is rising up and I go, I think the best years of the church are before us and not behind us. It's that hope that causes us as a network even to dream about planting churches in the next place, in the next place, in the next place, because I know, I know that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I know that, yes, I will have trouble in this world, but Jesus promised me that he has overcome the world. Hope causes us to dream. It causes us to dream as people. It causes us to dream as churches. It's one of the things I think that makes our family of churches different. So this hope is inspiring action on Naomi's part. And, and she's starting to dream again. And, and I, I'm going to tell you her plan. I'm going to go back through her plan. And you, particularly fathers in the crowd, you tell me if this sounds like a good plan, okay? This is what she says. Hey, Naomi, you're young and attractive. How about you go make yourself like as attractive as possible? Go wash up put some perfume on, those things, and wait till it's completely dark so that nobody knows what you're doing. Find Boaz where he's sleeping and make sure that he's like, you waited long enough that he's in good spirits and he's had a lot to eat and has had some drink. And then go uncover his feet and lay down there and eventually he'll wake up and then he'll tell you what to do. Fathers, does that sound like good like prom night advice? Joel, I'm just waiting for you to just step up and, like, shoot a gun. Anyway, so. This is one of those things, like, you, you read this, and, and you're listening to Naomi's words, and you're just laughing. You're like, where is this going? This, and you just have to pause for a bit and forget that maybe you might know the end of the story. And just, like, pause for a bit. Like, what is happening here? This is one of my first, like, big questions as I began studying out this text. It's like, this seems like a terrible idea. And, and there's... Scholars that debate both sides. Is this a sexually suggestive plan or is this just an odd plan? That's the only two options you've got. And most, most lean toward it being just an, an odd plan because you look at the character of the individuals involved and go, gosh, this seems like a radical detour. But I think this is one of those times where I go, hey, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. Regardless, regardless, I think the big thing we can take away is that there's hope, and hope has caused her to dream. And I think one of the things I'm comforted as, as a church leader, elder, pastor, is that God can use imperfect plans and imperfect people still to work for good. That's like a great comfort. My confidence at the end of the day is not in the perfection of my plan or the perfection of the people that we're doing things with. It's in the sovereign goodness of God who can use any situation and turn it for good. That's my takeaway on that one. So she's dreaming. She's got this plan. And so that's kind of the Naomi part of the story. Now let's move into the Ruth portion and read verses 6 through 9. It says this. So they went down. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, 
the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Guys, I'm a, I'm a feeler at heart, so one of the things I try to do when I'm, I'm reading scriptures, I try to place myself in the scene. And this has been a little bit of an odd one for me because it's like this reverse marriage proposal. Like I remember myself December 3rd of 2005 when I drove out to Ada Hayden Park just on the outskirts of Ames, which is the home of Iowa State University where we were studying at the time. And I remember carrying Stacy Marie Steinloggy in this beautiful dress out to the end of the dock. I told her that we were going out there to look at the skyline of Ames. If any of you have ever been to Ames, there's no skyline. It was like lights in a distance. So she had to have known something was up. She claims she didn't, and I praise God for her gullible nature. Um, but I remember I, I walked her to the end of the dock, and I was holding her in my arms, and it had snowed like six inches that day, and so I'm clearing it away with my foot. And uh, at a certain moment, I, I disappear. Like my, my, my body presence from behind her disappeared as she noticed that I wasn't there anymore and turns around to find me on a knee. I remember just my heart pumping. You know, that well-rehearsed line in my head that I'd prepared for months at that point, Stacy Marie Steinloggy, will you be my bride? Will you marry me? Guys, when you walk into this, you've got to think about the same heart pounding going on, right? There she is. I wonder how long Ruth lay at his feet thinking, okay, when he wakes up, what am I going to say? What's he, what am I going to say? And this isn't some weird power move. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't want you to walk away thinking that, that, like, Ruth is doing something that's like, whoa, way culturally, you know, pushing the limits or whatever. This isn't some power move. Look at the first words out of her mouth. When he gets startled, he says, who are you? What does she say? I am Ruth, your servant. It's not a power move. There's a lot more going on here, and we'll, we'll dig into it. But watch what she says after that. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is that well-rehearsed line that she had thought for minutes, maybe even hours. What she's doing is she's actually stealing something that he had said to her just a chapter before. If you got your Bibles in front of you, go back to Ruth 2. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is a word that Boaz had spoken about her when he was praising her because he said this, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, now catch this phrase, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. She took that line, she said, you praised me for being a woman who placed myself under the, the wings of the God of Israel. I took refuge in him. And now I'm staying in that same place under his wing, but now I'm even stepping deeper in and going, and would you place your wing over me? This whole scene here is not void of romance. This isn't some random act on her part. He has been unusually nice to her, and she caught it. 
You can see in chapter 2, right, he was quick to notice her, right? That's verse 5. He protected her, verse 9. He provided for her, verses 14 through 17. He praised her. We just read that in verses 11 through 12. Ladies, if you're looking for a man, maybe stop looking so much at, like, physical attraction, that aspect of things, though important, and think more, like, does this man bring these things into the equation? Is he quick to notice you? Does he protect you? Does he provide for you? Does he praise you? Does he celebrate you? That's the type of thing you want to look for in a man. And this is always the challenging part of relationships because you never know what the other side is thinking or what they're going to do. I I have to counsel people on this all the time, young people on this, because somewhere in in your upbringing, there's this mindset of like, well, whatever happens in relationships, I just don't want to get hurt. I don't want to put myself out there. It's like, guys, if that's your goal in life and your goal in relationships is to not put yourself out there, you're never going to have a relationship with anybody. That's just a fact. Especially when it comes to dating relationships, that's what it is. You have to put yourself out there, and you don't know if they're going to reciprocate. And it creates one of those like, hey, okay. (laughs) Just coffee. Got it. Just friends. Got it. But he had been incredibly nice to her, and it had caught her attention. And this is her way of kind of coming back around and reciprocating it just to kind of get in his way and let him know, hey, I, I, I noticed that, and I feel the same way. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And not only is she willing, but even within all of this is extra blessing. This idea of the family redeemer, while Ruth could go out and marry anybody that she wanted, this option, this redeemer followed a Hebrew custom and it allowed for the family name and the family land to have a future. And so again, you got to feel the suspense of this moment. Naomi's odd plan, Ruth is going along with it. She has now done her part. And, And this is where it gets most interesting because remember, all that Naomi had said was like, hey, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's the instruction manual. And then at this point, you just pause, and he'll tell you what to do. And I want to just remind you here real quick of the scene and the situation, because this whole thing, especially thinking young people, is just riddled with temptation. He's in good spirits. She's vulnerable. No one knows that she's there. She looks good. There's the scent of fresh barley and perfume in the air. I'm pretty sure like the Jewish version of Kenny G is playing in the background. I'm I'm making that up. I actually Googled that. Just, I'm like, what's the Jewish version of Kenny G? I didn't get anything, but it's like the one thing the internet couldn't answer for me. They, they say though, all right, that was too much. Uh, what is it, though, that they say about character, right? That, that character is who you are when no one's watching? Guys, no one is watching this scene. It's just the two of them. We're about to see what kind of man Boaz is. This is tremendous. Men, make sure you listen up. And he said, this is now the Boaz part of the story, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. 
for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize the other. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And as she held it out, he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave for me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Man, if you want like a picture of true manhood, I give you Boaz. Like in this thick, dark backdrop of the night, the height of tension, Boaz' character, Boaz's character shines bright because he doesn't touch her. I'm sure the blood is pumping. (laughs) I'm sure he wants to. And it's not only that he has the restraint to not touch her, but he even has the straight restraint in the the middle of it to even recognize that according to even the letter of the law, even though she wants to marry him and him her, he's not even the right guy yet to marry her. And, And that adds an additional layer of complexity. And he's even in that moment able to recognize I need to submit myself to God's word on this. You know, I imagine like the Ryan Gosling character and Rachel McAdams or something, you know, out of the notebook. It's raining out and the whole deal. And he's screaming, I don't care about the rules. I love you. Let's run away together. This is like the total opposite of that. And it's Ryan Gosling is a wimp. This, this dude is, this is real. This is real. This is like the reverse of the garden scene. You know, I I often will walk young couples through this, you know, because in the garden scene, what you have is you have temptation that led to sin that led to brokenness. And here, in this exact same situation, you you have temptation lurking, but what was an opportunity for sin actually becomes a declaration for God. Like in the, the, the garden scene, and I love walking young couples through this. Think about this for a moment. What you get in the garden scene is at the end of chapter 2, it says that the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. Interestingly, seven verses later, what you have is now they're trying to cover their nakedness and they're shameful. Both broken in relationship with God and each other. And I love asking young couples, I said, what, what changed? What happened? And the answer that I always get is, well, they ate the, the fruit. I go, okay. Do you think there's more, like something maybe in there? And I'll use this as an opportunity to, to try to put something that I hope will serve as a foundation for their marriage into them. I say, guys, the reason that all of a sudden there was now shame between the two of them that they didn't have the ability to look each other in the eyes anymore the same way as before is because he knew 
that if she was pressed hard enough and tempted hard enough, she would cave. And she knew the same thing about him. The greatest thing that you can lay as a foundation for your marriage or any relationship, really, is confidence that that other person can have in you to know that you fear God more than anything else. And there's so many shame-filled marriages because husbands and wives don't have that confidence in each other. They're able to look over and go, yeah, you're not perfect, but I know at the end of the day, you fear God more than anything else. And so if there's brokenness between us, if there's a sin that needs to be confessed, you will be quick to bring it into the light. You'll tell me more than I even had to know just because you just desire not so much to like look good in my eyes. You just desire to walk before the Lord. You're displaying for me that you fear God more than anything else. This is why as young couples, when they come into my office and we'll start having conversations about purity, you know, you'll sometimes get into these conversations where it's it's clear they're trying to figure out like if there's any wiggle room here. It's like, well, I mean, if we're going to get married anyway, what's the point of holding off to that last day? And it's like, well, you tell me. What type of seeds do you want to sow into the foundation of your marriage? Are they ones of compromise? Well, we knew what God said. We knew what we were called to, but we could get away with it. And in there, yeah, you may not get caught by somebody. But for that other person that's entering into marriage with you, what do they know about you? If pressed hard enough, you will cave. That's why if you want to know what it means to be a man and if you want to have a healthy relationship, begin to operate with a mindset that you fear God more than anything else. I want to be in the right spot with him. And that will be a gift to give the person that you're marrying. I remember when I gave my life to Christ, one of the big defining moments for me is I gave my life to Christ a week before prom. I might be the only person in high school that ever did that. And, and there were moments, I will be honest with you, that I was like, oh, you idiot. You would have felt just as bad about your sin life a week from now. And it was foolishness on my part. I remember that whole week just praying, God, help me to just live with full love for you and not for the things of this world. And, and there was a girl in the picture that I was pretty, I think the word would be smitten. I don't even know what the definition is there, but that, that was, that'd be the best word for me as a 17-year-old boy. And, uh, and I had other hopes for what prom would look like, gave my life to Christ, and began to realize I cannot pursue those things. And I remember that night, you know, as we're hanging out after the, you know, the whole after prom, all that stuff ends, we're hanging out at a friend's house, and people are beginning to go off to different rooms, you know, that defining moment. I remember at that moment, standing with her, walking her back to a place where she could sleep for the night, praying the whole time. And I, I remember laying her down in bed, and I think she was expecting me to join her. I remember looking at her and just saying, hey, you, you know the decision I made a week ago to surrender my life to Christ. As much as I value this relationship and absolutely adore you, I value my relationship with Christ more. I hope you can understand that. I tucked her in, closed the door, went and slept on like the tile floor of the kitchen with the fluorescent lights on. Because somebody told me once that people don't sin in the daylight or when the light's on. 
And so I, I, I laid there, most uncomfortable, in a sense, like physically uncomfortable night's sleep of my life. I have never felt more beautiful and pure in my soul. I felt like I just climbed Mount Everest. And at that point, I'm like, this is it. There's no turning back. I'm going to live a life of no compromise. And guys, I haven't been perfect since then. That, that'd be crazy for me to claim that. But it was one of those defining moments for me. I was like, I, I do, I fear God more than anything else. I love Jesus more than anything else, more than any human being or any other title or thing. As Boaz here, it, it's clear how he aligns and where his allegiance is first and foremost. Boaz is a picture of true, not just even masculinity, just what we should all aspire to be. And I love this because not only is Boaz now known as a man of generosity, that he's godly, self-controlled, he's also known as a man of action. Did you catch that in verse 18? This is something I, I, I want to just define more of us. When Naomi says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Man of action, he's a stud. And at that point, I got to pause because you'll get into chapter four next week. And so you'll have to wait to hear the rest of the story. But church, if I could, before I, I close things up this morning, I just want to give you like a couple of quick landing points, big picture that I think as you close up Ruth 3, you need to keep in your mind. As number one is Ruth 3, I believe, should make us really envious. It's at least made me really envious. I wish that my life, I could zoom out enough and be able to see it in 85 verses. Wouldn't that be nice? Because especially when you're going through the hardships of life and you're living through the day-to-day -day grind of it, it's really hard to on those days see the goodness of God in it. But if you zoom out and you see the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz in 85 verses, you forget all the days of hurting in the midst of famine, grieving a husband, grieving two sons. One of the things that Stan and I have talked about, and it's true for both of our churches, for Anthem Church and Candeo Church, is that for a young church, we have both experienced a tremendous amount of pain and heartache. Guys, I've, I've never done a funeral for a person who died of natural causes. Every funeral I've ever done has been a tragedy. Did one here just this past spring a seven-month-old boy. I didn't even know they made caskets that small. They shouldn't. It's horrible. And we start walking through these, these things. And I just want to say to you, if, if your story is something like that or you've experienced that, I just want to say I'm sorry. I don't know if you're in the Ruth chapter one portion of your story, emptiness, or two, where you're beginning to see glimmers of hope and it's helping you to dream again. Or if you're in chapter three, this moment of tension and these defining moments in life, or if you're chapter four and it all comes together, I just, I just want you to move forward in life with this rock solid confidence, right? I already quoted Psalm 23, verse six, right? That only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. But you have to know this, Christian, that for you, for all of us, there is a sovereign and good father over all of our stories. And every story that he writes for his children ends and they lived happily ever after. 
That's true for anyone in Christ. Everybody's story ends that way. And so I'm envious. I wish I could zoom out of life and see my life in 85 verses. And watch how God is moving and working and orchestrating all for, for my good. Because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. But it's sometimes hard to see that in the midst of it. But church, don't let yourself be shaken from it. We have a sovereign and good father over everything. Guys, and the last thing that we can't miss in this text is Christ. Go back to verse 1. If you've got a pen, circle this word. What was it that Naomi sought for Ruth? And circle the word rest. The same thing's actually in chapter 1, verse 9. It was what she sought for both of her Moabite daughter-in-laws. Word rest. What was it that Boaz provided? What were they seeking in him? It was rest. And isn't that ultimately what we all want? You maybe can hear in there the echoes of Christ's words in Matthew. Come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you, what's the word? Rest. You begin to see just a level of richness in this text that just explodes out when all of a sudden you zoom out and you view Boaz as Christ and Ruth as the church. She comes to him with a checkered past, a foreigner. She's vulnerable and in need. And places herself before him and says, will you cover me? And Christ sticks out his wing, the edge of his garments, and he covers us. And I love how this passage ends because what was it that Boaz wouldn't do until he had provided that for her? He wouldn't rest. You see Christ in the church. But when you get to the end of chapter 3, this is real life. Because you know that the one who promised is faithful and he's trustworthy, but you've got to live in this already but not yet tension. He's active, he's moving, he's working. I know how this story ends. There's going to be a happily ever after, but our lives, we live in chapter three. Waiting for that day when Jesus will come back and make all things right and we'll be brought back together with him and the waiting is over and our hearts are filled with joy to the fullest amount over and over and over again. But we sit in the already, but not yet. But we know that the one who promises trustworthy and faithful and true. And so we don't let ourselves be shaken. We have a good and all-powerful and loving father and provider and lover. And he takes care of us. That's what we need to see in Ruth 3. Church, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word, for the beauty of eager hearts for the blessing of people sitting with open hands, desiring to give their best for you and for your kingdom work to advance. God, one of the things that we get called to in life as believers is that, yes, we will grieve. Yes, it's right to grieve. But we don't grieve like the rest of the world because we grieve as people with hope. 
And Father, I pray that that would be a defining mark, not only of our lives as individuals, but as a church and as a people and as a network as a whole. We love you. Amen.